Well, welcome to your midday. Lisa Kay here on KTOE, hanging out and, you know, just up until 12 o'clock this afternoon. It's a Monday, man. I've had a busy weekend. I'll tell you a little bit about that. Yes, I will. A little bit later. Forecast details for us. Mostly sunny today. It looks like about 36 for the high. Fog, a little bit of mist out there in our listening area. Wind out of the south around 8 miles an hour. Sitting at about 21 degrees right now. And my guest on the phone in the 10 o'clock hour, we have got with our DNR friends, we've got Greg Hoke on the phone with us. Greg is the Prairie Habitat Supervisor with the DNR. How are you doing, Greg? Thanks for joining us. Thank you for the invitation this morning. Well, how is it going in your world as far as uh, where are you located right now? Uh, currently, I live uh, about halfway between uh, Cambridge and Mora, just a, a little north of the Twin Cities. Oh, okay. All right. Beautiful area. Yeah, it's it's a really nice mix of yeah, open lands and brushland and forest and, um, yeah, lots of wildlife up here. I know when we talked to the DNR, uh, so many different topics, so many spokes to the wheel that is the DNR. Um, I, Prairie Habitat Supervisor, in a nutshell, what do you what do you do for a living? Can you tell me a little bit about your job? Yeah, so one thing I do is I work with the right grant proposals to the outdoor for the Outdoor Heritage Fund to try to bring some money from the Legacy Amendment and the Lassard Sands Outdoor Heritage Council to the DNR to to do good work, and then work with lots of partners. Pheasants Forever, Ducks Unlimited, the Nature Conservancy, Audubon. Um, and many, many others um, are federal partners, Fish and Wildlife Service and Natural Resources Conservation Service, um, to just get uh, all sorts of uh, good habitat projects um, done out there on the landscape. Um, it's a big job, and nobody can do it themselves. Right. And I, so I like to take this, I like to roll it all the way back to when you were a child or in school and decided this is the direction that you were going to go. Did you always love the outdoors and, and conservation and... Is this where you thought you'd end up? Um, yes, I, I did think I was going to end up somewhere in here. Um, yeah, I spent uh, many, many a childhood days out uh, r- rambling around. Um, I don't know if kids do that these days, but <laughs> we used to. Um, yeah, visited my first prairie uh, my freshman year of college in Indiana. Um, then, uh, yeah, moved to uh, Kansas for um, eight years for graduate school and some teaching, and then uh, moved up to Minnesota about uh, 22 years ago. Um, did a little teaching, a couple years with the Fish and Wildlife Service, and about the last 12 with uh, the DNR. All right. What is it about the the, the, the prairies and uh, grasslands and things like that that call to you? Yeah, boy, I, w- I, wish, I, could, uh, I wish I could answer that question. <laughs> um, um, yeah, there, there's, there's something out there that I haven't really dialed in on. Um, and I, you know, I think everybody who, you know, is in love with, you know, some place or some ecosystem, you know, forest, grassland, desert, lakes. Yeah, if we could figure that out and quantify it and identify it, it, w- it would be a lot easier. But yeah, there's just something out there that captures my heart. I know that we, I think, I think the radio ranch here is on some protected wetlands and things like that. But the, those are words that kind of roll around. We don't really know what they mean. When we talk, talk about uh, prairies and grasslands, and um, I, I know that we don't have as much as we used to, so the ones that are, are protected are that way for a reason. Yeah, so we have about, uh, you know, prairie and then prairie wetlands. Um, we are part of the, the prairie pothole region, you know, covered 
roughly, you know, the, the western and southern third of Minnesota, um, we only have about 2% of our prairies left, which sounds terrible, but other states like Indiana, um, Illinois, Iowa, um, often have just one-tenth of 1% left. Um, so a lot of prairie was lost uh, during kind of that Euro-American Euro uh, settlement period, kind of the, the mid to late 1800s. And so why, why is that? Let's talk about, um, and why do we continue to lose that type of land? Yeah, I mean, there's both the, the practical side of things, and there's then we can you know also get really philosophical about it. Um, one thing you find when you read, read about the prairie is um, people really love forests. Um, there are, we call people, some people tree huggers. Mm-hmm. Um, that's either a negative or a positive, depending <laughs> on who you are. Um, there aren't any grass huggers. No. <laughs> um, um, you know, prairie was was very easy to, um, it, it was easier to plow up a prairie than cut down a forest. Um, so one of the issues is we basically lost the, the bulk of our prairie um, to, to the plow um, in the mid, mid to late 1800s, kind of post-Civil War. Um, so for several generations, um, you know, Americans don't even really, you know, know or understand what, you know, a, a prairie that stretches to the horizon kind of looks or feels like. Um, that land grows a lot of corn and soybeans. We, we are the breadbasket of the world. Um, but by doing that, we lost, you know, we, we, we lost some habitat. And we also lost um, another part of our, our agricultural economy in many areas, um, the, the livestock and grazing um, part, part, of, part of agriculture. Hmm. Okay. So uh, talk a little bit about the, um, the wildlife that's, that lives on our prairies right now. What does a prairie look like? I think I, if, I, if I think about it, Casota Prairie, we have that around here uh, in my most immediate area, which is, I've been there. It's gorgeous. But yes, um, it also is also right in the middle of the city. Um, there are yeah, habitats so, and, that live and, and, there. Yeah, and, and one of the issues with the prairie is there is no good definition of a prairie. Um, it's it's a land that's relatively flat, although it can be rolling and hilly. Um, it's generally a land without trees, um, although we do have a climate that will support trees. Um, so to, to have a prairie and to keep a prairie, you've got to manage it pretty intensively. And for the most part, that means um, fire. Um, so Minnesota prairies... Um, as well as prairies to, to the east of us, are a, are a very fire-dependent ecosystem. Um, so even in places where we have prairie, one of the biggest um, issues um, is actually invasion by trees, um, which sounds counterintuitive. You know, <laughs> more does. trees on the landscape sounds good, um, but a lot of the prairie wildlife, as well as prairie grasses and wildflowers, don't do well with trees around. Um, so we actually spend a fair amount of time um, and effort uh, re- removing trees from a lot of our prairies. Interesting. Can you talk a little bit about the, the wildlife that lives on a prairie? What are we seeing on, on a prairie that, I'm assuming, pollinators yeah, so, for sure. Um, you know, when, when people think prairie, um, a lot of them are going are gonna to immediately go to birds, um, whether that be the prairie nesting ducks which are pretty much all of them except maybe the wood duck and, and maybe the ringneck duck up north. Um, 
And then you have like your prairie grouse, uh, your sharp-tailed grouse, your prairie chickens, um, quail um, south of Minnesota. Um, in today's world, the ring-necked pheasant um, is, a, is a very popular bird um, across uh, the, the Midwest and, and Great Plains. And then there's a, a whole host of, of songbirds out there, um, out, out in the prairie, as well as, well as a few shorebirds, actually. And then I mentioned pollinators. Are those, uh, you keep hearing news stories about we need pollinators and do this and that to our lawn, but there's a significant amount of pollinators on a prairie, isn't there, I would assume? Oh, yes, I'm, and I'm, I'm sorry, I should, should have included those. Yes, is that's, that's the other, other large group, and there are, you know, I, it, it would be wrong to even say that there are dozens or, or scores. There are hundreds of pollinators as well as other insects um, out there on the prairie. Um, that can play an important role in our economy. Um, I mean, I, I've learned just in the last 12 years or so that a lot of the honeybees um, actually spend a fair amount of time in Minnesota and the Dakotas um, during the time when, when crops aren't blooming. A lot of people will move their bees around the country and then bring them back here. And mm. we need places for those honeybees as well as the yeah the hundreds of native uh, bees, uh um, butterflies, etc., out there on the prairie. Our guest today is Greg Hoke. He's the DNR Prairie Habitat Supervisor here on Talk of the Town. Greg, stick with us here. We're going to talk a little bit about the role of grasslands and uh, public lands with the DNR in order to protect and maintain those things. Our guest today is Greg Hoke from the DNR. He's the Prairie Habitat Supervisor, finding out a little bit about what Greg does. And Greg, can you talk a little bit about the different categories of grasslands? Uh, I'm not really aware of anything. When you say prairie, I, you know, my, my brain doesn't live there. I don't know um, that there's different categories of those things. Yeah, so um, we can really simply break things up into native prairie that has never seen a plow and restored prairie um, that you know, what was ever was used for something else in the past, quite often row crops that um, we, the conservation community, um, have restored back to primarily native grasses and, and flowers. Um, but then it's a very complicated landscape out there. So in my world, uh, we deal with public lands. So the DNR um, owns wildlife management areas as well as scientific and natural areas, state parks. Um, our federal partners with the Fish and Wildlife Service have national wildlife refuges, waterfowl production areas. There are a number of easement programs um, where people pay to permanently or get are paid to permanently protect the land from things like development, um, but the land stays in private hands. Um, and then there are um, lands in, in programs through the Farm Service Agency, such as the Conservation Reserve Program, as well as just private lands out there that are maintained as pastures, hay fields, uh, people's private hunting or, or recreational lands. Um, so it, 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 the, the maps have a lot of colors on them, and, and it, it can be pretty confusing pretty quickly. And so can you tell me what has happened? What have you seen changing in the last you know, decade or two as far as your, the grasslands that you work with and the public lands? Yeah, so we've been able, and by we, I mean the conservation community, we, we've been growing our base of, uh, of public lands, both state, federal, as well as um, by organizations such as the Nature Conservancy, um, as well as our easement program. 
Um, a lot of that is funded through the Lassard Sam's Outdoor Heritage Council and um, the Outdoor Heritage Fund. Um, however, we also have to talk about the agricultural economy, um, and we've lost anywhere from eight to 900,000 acres of land in the Conservation Reserve Program um, since about 2007, 2008. Mm. Um, so it's quite often, you know, a couple steps forward, a couple steps back um, in, in the conservation world. Um, but that also shows, um, you know, the importance of, um, you know, I hate to say it, but the importance of politics and legislation um, in, in conservation. Um, we, we don't stand alone. We, we exist in, in, a, in a larger world. Right, right. And and having to work right alongside with that, I'm sure that's got its challenges for you as well. Uh, can you talk a little bit about earlier, you mentioned um, fire on a grassland and how that's used as a, uh, kind of a, a tool. But it's, is it always the best case? I don't imagine that fires just start naturally sometimes. I mean, in, in the wild, do spontaneous yeah, fires? There, and and that, that's a whole story in and of itself. Um, we think the, the vast majority of fires kind of pre-European settlement um, were probably started by Native Americans. Um, out west in the mountains, they have what are called dry lightning strikes, um, where you have thunderstorms, but the atmosphere is so dry that the rain evaporates before it gets to the ground. Hmm. Um, in the Midwest, if there's lightning, it's usually raining cats and dogs. Um, so we think almost all of the fires um, historically would have been set by people. Um, today, um, in some parts of the, of the country, um, still used heavily by agriculture, um, specifically live, livestock uh, breed or livestock folks um, who want to clean off all the thatch from last year and get nice green um, grass. And then we use it both to kind of rejuvenate um, our grasslands as well as um, knock back uh, the trees and shrubs as well as some invasive species. Right. So uh, if is it always a good idea? I mean, not all not all burning is good, right? It, it, the, the devil's in the details, okay. as with everything else. Um, so we try to, you know, do most of our burning really early in the spring um, or a little bit late in the fall in the last few years. Um, you know, we do. I've been I've been on a number of fires. Um, every once in a while, we will catch an early nesting bird. Um, and destroy that nest. Grassland birds are fantastic renesters. Uh -huh. um, they will renest, but we do try to avoid um, doing too much during that nesting season, um, where we've got either eggs or young birds, or you know, young other wildlife out there that we we don't want to be uh, causing any problems for. Well, then what are the benefits of that? Then what it just comes back better, stronger. It'll, it'll come, but yeah, it, it just kind of rejuvenates everything. Um, the grasses will grow taller. Um, you can always tell a prairie that burned in the spring uh, because the wildflowers will just go bonkers all <laughs> summer long. Um, in fact, if we want to do a, a seed harvest um, on a site, we'll, um, we'll always try to burn it in the spring for a fall seed harvest because we know after the burn, the, the, the flowers and grasses just flower and produce seeds like like crazy compared mm -hmm. to an unburned prairie. Greg Hoke is with us, the DNR Prairie Habitat Supervisor. I know you've written some books. Are these are the topics of your books uh, related to what you do? Yeah, um, and these the books are just kind of what I do in the evenings to, to keep myself busy. So I've done books on prairie chickens, woodcock, uh, wood ducks, 
And my most recent one was just on the tall grass prairie in general. Um, those books were published by the University of Iowa Press, or you can just um, search on my name um, on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, and, and you'll find them. Absolutely. Fantastic. I, I love what it is that you do, a passion and desire. And uh, before we went on the air, you said that you're the guy that sits behind the desk and lets everybody else do the stuff that you, you're working on. Uh, so thank you so much for all of the work that you put in with the DNR and the Prairie Habitat Supervisor uh, position there. Anything else that you want us to know today? Um, I, all I want you to know is for everybody to, either this winter or next spring, next summer, get out on the prairie and uh, get to know it and get to enjoy it. Perfect. I love it. It's, uh, there's something so serene and relaxing about being uh, in a space like that. So thank you so much, Greg Hoke, for joining us today here on Talk of the Town. I certainly appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation.